getting quiet, so I guess we'll start. Hope everybody had a good week last week and ready to start a good week this week today. We're going to pick up with chapter 6 of 1 Samuel. At the end of the last chapter, the ark's been captured, Ark of the Covenant. And I thought, just real quick, I hit a couple of uh, high points about what this ark is and why it's so important. Got this one out of the New Illustrated Bible Dictionary, Nelson's. It's an older one, but uh, it's a good one. Just a couple of high, high points about what the Ark of the Covenant is. And I'm just going to read it the way they have it here. A sacred portable chest, which along with its two related items, the mercy seat and cherubim, was the most important sacred object of the Israelites during the wilderness period. It's also known as the Ark of the Lord, Ark of God, and the Ark of the Testimony. And between the two cherubim, little angel-looking things, um, were on the Ark of the Testimony, God spoke to Moses. So once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, but only with sacrificial blood that he sprinkled on the mercy seat for the atonement of sin. So God uses it there to communicate. Um, The Ark had a gold cover, and that was the mercy seat. Uh, because the blood of a sacrificial animal was applied to it on the Day of Atonement, signifying the mercy of God to forgive sin. Um, Of one piece, the mercy seat, uh, were two angelic statues called cherubim. They stood at opposite ends of the mercy seat, facing each other with wings outstretched above and their faces bowed toward the mercy seat. They marked the place where the Lord sat enthroned as well as the place where he communicated with Moses. So it was a... And there's more to it, but I'm not going to read all that. Um, it was it was a very important thing, very connected to God and how he communicated. So for it to be gone is a very big, big thing, and in the camp of the enemies. All right, we'll pick up with chapter 6. Again, I'm using the English Standard Version, so I just want to let you all know if it sounds a little different than what you're looking at. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priest and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. And in my Bible, the hymn has a little h, so they're not not referring to God the way we would refer to God. Um... Do not send it away empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? And they answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land. I know some say rats. Uh, and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. So apparently the ark being in their presence has uh, wreaked havoc in every city and they keep moving it to. And um, just says tumors and rats or mice. None of that sounds good. It sounds really bad. Uh, but they've called their priests and diviners, their magic people, uh, some to figure out how to appease the God of Israel. 
Uh, and when they decided they needed to get rid of it, they suggested not to send it back empty. Uh, and they they sent what was like a trespass or guilt offering. But it wouldn't be that they knew about the Israelites' worship regulations. This isn't you know, the way they would do it. But it wasn't really uncommon at this time for them to have something like a an appeasement or a guilt offering to the many gods that they worshipped whenever they thought they had offended or angered them. So something more like that. Uh, but this was an admittance of their wrongdoing and that the God of Israel was indeed more powerful than anything they were worshipping. Uh, they desperately wanted it gone. The five golden tumors and five golden rats represented the number of Philistine cities and, and their lords over those cities. Uh, so apparently they were plagued with rats, mice, and tumors. So, all right, let's pick back up. Let's see, verse 6. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it put in a box at its side. The figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way. And watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. So they're not quite ready to admit that uh, the God of Israel has done this to them, but they're going to devise a test here. What's interesting here is that the Philistines know very well about uh, God's power in the events in Egypt. That's, you know, that's Genesis stuff here. So they, they, they know all about it, and they, and they are basically saying, why would we do what they did? You know, you saw how that turned out. Well, let's not do that. Uh, so they were able to recognize that it was useless to go against him. You know, find it interesting all these years later that that they know. And, and uh, the only thing is, it brings up to me why would they continue to worship all the false gods they had when they clearly concede that the God of Israel is more powerful? Um, the only thing I could come up with is they're just content to worship anything and everything. So it's like, okay, your God definitely is more powerful than what we're worshiping. But I don't ever say that they add him to the list of gods they worship. So uh, uh, just just a question. You know, it's, it's like if you've experienced this, you see this. Why in the world does that not make you think about what you're doing? But apparently not. Um, it also makes me wonder, do we continue to worship or give value to lesser things when we know better? I'd say I probably do. I don't mean to, but I probably do. It's like most people probably do. But it's similar. It's similar. Uh, we know God is everything, but yet we place value on things ab- above him sometimes without mean- meaning to, and, and we definitely know better. Uh, so I guess we're human and they were human, but... Uh, doesn't mean we don't need to do better. <laughs> All right, these two milk cows. I find this story very interesting. Uh, it's one you could probably just look over and you've read it probably several times through the years and just maybe hadn't really thought about it. But 
these two milk cows uh, that had never had a yoke on them. Basically, they were never trained. They, they weren't trained for pulling a cart. They'd never been hooked up together and told, go this way. Um, so it would be pretty unlikely for them to just work together immediately and go straight. Um, that, that's probably not likely. Um, they took their calves away. These were nursing cows. Uh, so they've separated them. So that makes it even more unlikely that the the cows would go the opposite way that their calves who were calling for them, you know, for them to go the other way would not be natural at all. Um, so they devised this test to make sure that all this wasn't a coincidence. Somehow all this was supposed to be a coincidence uh, before they would fully commit to acknowledging that it was God's hand that, that did this. This Beth Shemesh that they're talking about sending it to means House of the Sun. It's located in a place called Sorek Valley. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but Sorek Valley connected Israel and Philistia, and it was designated as a Levitical city to the descendants of Aaron. And you can look at that in Joshua 21, 16, that that was, that was so. So let's get back to the story here. I'm trying to figure out which verse I stopped at. I think we're ready for 10. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. I'm going to stop right there just for a second. So it says the cows did what? They didn't turn right or to the left. Um, and they were lowing, I would say perhaps in protest of this whole thing, because I feel they wanted to go the other way back towards their, their calves, who were probably calling to them. Uh, so this, you know, it's just God at work here. He's, he's directing this. This is They wanted a sign, they're getting it. You know, he's going to oblige them in this. Um, so I, I just find that very interesting. The whole picture, I can see it. It's uh, almost comical in a way if it wasn't uh, so serious. All right, let's pick back up with 14. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which were the golden figures and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Bethshemus offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. 
Then the men of Bethshemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go, away, go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of kiriath Jerem, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. All right, now, depending on which translation you're reading, it doesn't say 70 men. What does someone else's say? 50,070. That's quite a difference, isn't it? Um, I was looking, I think I'm jumping ahead of myself, but uh, struck 70 a man. New King James, I know, says 50,070. The Hebrew literally says, of the people, 70 men, comma, 50,000 men. It's a possible scribal error could have occurred in which the the number would omit the 50,000 and likely be 70, as in Josephus. I guess... We've probably most of us heard of Josephus, the Jewish historian who we've used on a few things, a lot of things. Uh, I've got a copy of it at home, and I, I just I didn't want to bring that big old book with me, but they're referencing what, what Josephus had said, and I'll just read from it. It says, But now it was that the wrath of God overtook them and struck 70 persons of the village of Beth Shemesh dead, who not being priest and so not worthy to touch the ark had approached to it. Of course, this isn't the Bible. This is a, a his, historical view. Uh, but in his own little footnote down here, it says, These 70 men, being not so much as Levites, touched the ark in a rash or profane manner and were slain by the hand of God for such their rashness and profaneness according to the divine threatenings. And he gives some scriptures. But, but this is where he says, But how are other copies come to add such an incredible number as 50,000 in this one town or small city, I know not. So there you go. Don't really have the answer exactly, but there's a very good possibility. It really should have been just 70. Um, doesn't affect the story, doesn't affect the power of God, doesn't affect the meaning of any of this. But uh, from what I've read, this little town probably wouldn't have had more than about 1,000 people in it. So I don't I don't know where the 50,000, you know, I, I did see one commentary that talked about like um, the NASCAR races like Bristol, how vastly the population of that city is on a day of a race. You know, it could have been it drew all kinds of people around and everybody looked upon it, but it seems like it's more likely that it, it's just a scribal error and that it, it should have just been 70. Most translations went with 70. But the point is that, that God struck them for, for looking upon, I think in the New King James it says looking into the Ark of the Lord. Uh, they were treating this like a common object of, of curiosity instead of the reverence that it was supposed to have. It's like, hey, look what's here, and everybody just like drawn to it as an attraction of some type, more of a, a curiosity. The, ex- the Hebrew expression looked upon indicates staring. So they were gawking at it, staring at it, marveling at it, I guess, but but that's not really what they were supposed to do. Uh, It wasn't an incidental glance. This is really more of an act of irreverence, Uh, and that's why God did what he did. And then it says, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? No one's able to stand against God's judgment. So the answer is no one. The people were afraid and asked the people of Kirith-Jerim to come and take this ark away from them. It was about 10 miles northeast of of where they were at. Uh, And they do take it. And Kirith-Jerim would be where the ark remained until David brought it to Jerusalem. So they are, we're going to see in chapter 7 here in just a moment, going to get it and take it.
Let's pick up verse 1 of chapter 7. And the men of Kirith-Jerim came and took up, took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kirith-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Eleazar, this is actually kind of a, a common name in the Levitical families. So there's been a few Eleazars. Means God is help or God is power, but he was consecrated or or literally set apart to be dedicated to this purpose of, of watching over the ark. Uh, he's probably a member of a priestly family. This 20 years that it mentions, this is most likely before Samuel calls the people together, which he's fixing it in uh, verse five, and the ark remains here, like I said, until David brings it to Jerusalem. Um, in his first year as king and be around 100 years. So it's going to stay stay put for a while. All right, verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. All right, so he has called them to repentance, first of all. You know, basically you're worshiping other idols while you're trying to worship God. Uh, So he's telling them, first, turn from idolatry. Second, direct your heart to the Lord. And then three, serve him only. None of this mixing of, of things. Uh, and, and I think this is kind of true today. Uh, we must also get rid of whatever's contrary to God's will in our lives. Uh, turn our hearts to him and serve him alone. Uh, those exact three things he's telling them are things that, that are important to us today too. So that's, that's something I take from that. Uh, these foreign gods and Ashtaroths, it, it's a plural form of the Canaanite goddess of fertility uh, and sexuality and war. Uh, Baal represented the male sky god who fertilized the land. Uh, so somehow they've incorporated some of these foreign gods into their own beliefs and worship. Uh, but God, uh, Samuel's basically saying you got to remove all these forms of worship of anything other than God and turn back to him. And of course, this is kind of unique to Israel. They're about the only ones around that uh, don't have, a, that, you know, everybody else worships multiple gods. They've got all kinds of things they worship. Uh, Israel's the only one being called to only worship, you know, the true God. But they were trying to do both. Um, I think we do that today. <laughs> uh, try to have a foot in both places, maybe. Uh, I don't think we do it on purpose, but uh, we do it sometimes, or I do sometimes. I have to catch myself and go, that's probably not in line with what I what I should be doing or thinking. So I, I think that again is another lesson we can we can apply from from this. The pouring out of the water 
before the Lord. It's just a sign of repentance. You know, the people are acknowledging they've sinned against the Lord, uh, which is different for them at this point. Uh, Samuel's now judging the people of Israel. I think he'd been doing that for a while, but it's said here, and so he's fully replaced Eli's judge. Uh, he's going to be the, the last judge of Israel before the first king, which we'll get to a little bit. Now, why would the Philistines be afraid <laughs> that they were they hear the Israelites are gathering together? Um, they probably thought uh, they were planning an attack. It wasn't really uncalled, you know, or unheard of for uh, groups, nations to meet together in almost a religious ceremony before battle, you know, to get their gods behind them. Um, so they may have thought that they're fixing to attack us. You know, all of Israel's met together in this one place. They're probably getting ready to attack us. So let's pick back up in verse 8. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far below beth All right, so... The Israelites were afraid at this point. I don't know if, if we'll go back, you know, in the earlier chapters of 1 Samuel, what did they do? They, they took the ark, not God's plan, didn't have God lead them in the battle. They're like, hey, we've got this ark, let's just go. And, and they just did it on their own, and they were badly defeated. Uh, so, yeah, they're afraid this time. <laughs> you know, they're like, is this going to happen again? Is God going to be with us? You know, um, so they were afraid that God wouldn't save them from the Philistines this time. Uh, but now they're dependent on the power of God instead of using the ark like a magical weapon of some kind, uh, which is what got them defeated before. They acted on their own, not of, of what God had wanted. Uh, and they've done as they were asked. They put away their false gods, and they're looking solely to God. So the outcome is going to be different this time. It says, God thundered with a mighty thunder or sound. So I don't know exactly. I mean, if it was just a very loud thunder. Um, the Philistines were confused by God and defeated. Um, what makes me think for sure this is a little different than just a very loud thunder? It didn't seem to affect the Israelites. They won. <laughs> they routed them. So whatever it was was directed solely to the Philistines. And, and God did it. God caused it. And the Israelites were victorious because God was with them. And this victory was so decisive, the Philistines didn't really attack the Israelites during the judgeship of Samuel again, during the days of Samuel. Um, and this Beth Car, this is the only place you're going to see it. It's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. And even today, its location is not known. So, Beth Car, mystery. All right, pick back up in verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. 
So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. So Samuel's the first circuit judge. I'm in the law field. I find that funny. But my wife thought it was funny. (laughs) But the first circuit judge here. All right, uh, Ebenezer. Here's that name again. This is not the same location that was in chapter 4 and chapter 5. The name means stone of help. So, different Ebenezer. All right. I think we're going to go on to chapter 8. Covering a little more ground today. Chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. I'm already going, uh (laughs) uh-oh. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways. Have we heard this already? Uh, But turned aside after gain, they took bribes and perverted justice. So I'm I'm probably like the rest of y'all, I'm thinking, oh, it's Hophni and Phinehas again, except these are judges, not priests. And um, it's not quite the same. It doesn't sound like they're doing quite... The amount of things they're doing. They're not taking God's sacrifice for themselves, but they are doing something really bad here. Um, so we're not told how old Samuel is, but one commentary I had said he was about 60, which doesn't sound that old to me anymore, but uh, uh, I guess in this, this reference it was. He appoints his two sons over the people in Beersheba, so it's approximately, from what I read, 50 to 57 miles south of Samuel's home in Ramah. So, and it probably was a small population at this time, so it's not like Samuel's just handing it all over to his sons. It's kind of like, here's a farther distance, there's one less place maybe I've got to travel to in my older years. Uh, that's the take I got on it in, in my study. The odd thing here is judges had not been appointed by anyone but God before now. So that's new. Um, probably probably shouldn't have happened, actually. Uh, his sons are Joel and Abijah. Joel means Lord is God, and Abijah means my father is the Lord, capital F. 8.3, Samuel's sons accepted bribes and perverted justice. Let's turn over to Deuteronomy 16. There's actually very specific things about this. Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through 20. And it says, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. 
So back in Deuteronomy, there's already something said about bribes and perverting justice. And here they are, the first two judges that you know Samuel pointed here, and that's what they're doing. They're they're out of range from their father, I would say. You know, 50 miles doesn't sound like much, but it does if you're walking. So they're they're once again not following in the ways of their father, who was a godly person. Um, So we're going to find out here, picking up in verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. The people are using Samuel's sons and his age as a reason to approach him about a king. Um, I think it's probably more likely we want to be like all other nations. Um, And then as we're going to see... Let's go with verse 8. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So God's recounting how they've rejected him since the day he brought them out of Egypt. Uh, The people are wanting to trust their plan instead of God's. Um, they're willing to trust a man to better lead them than God. I put a little sad face in my little notes on that where it says, um, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. That's probably one of the saddest verses in all the Bible, really. Uh, God's chosen people rejecting him once again, but in a bigger way in, in a sense. Uh, just sad, I think, to me. God allowed them to be defeated, you know, when they would leave Him, because it's a cycle with them. Uh, and when they trusted their own ways, I just wonder if maybe they thought if they had a king, a human king, leading them in battle, maybe that wouldn't happen, which is silly. Uh, but you know, with God leading them. If he was not happy with their ways, he would let them get defeated. You know, a human king's always going to try to win, but it doesn't mean they're going to win. But maybe in their human mind, this is what they're thinking. You know, we can circumvent having God angry at us or something. It doesn't say that. That's just me. But, um, yeah, that was just my thinking on it. All right, let's move. I also wonder, too, before I move on. If it's not got something to do with physically seeing something, they saw what God did. You know, there wasn't like an actual form standing there with them with the sword and leading them into battle. And I just wonder if maybe they just wanted to appear like the other nations. And uh, kind of reminded me too, and my wife said the same thing uh, about how they're so adamant about no, we want a king. And, and we're going to get to that here in just a minute, how they even, after they hear how horrible it's going to be, they still want one. It kind of reminds me of, of the whole Jesus and Barabbas. 
Now we've got this guy here who's horrible and kills people. Are you sure? Yes, we want him. You know, they're not listening, basically. They're just stirred up to what they think they want. It, it just reminded me of that when I read it. All right. All right, so Samuel's going to do what God said. You know, give them this big warning. Uh, this is what you're asking for. Here's what you're going to get. We'll see if you really want it. So Samuel's going to warn about what this is. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a kingdom, for a king from him. He said, and there's quite a list, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and one of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. And they're still going to want this. <laughs> We're going to draft all your children. We're going to pull them into the king's service. He's going to take even more than what you're already giving as a sacrifice. He's just going to take it for his use. There's a lot that goes into having a king. It didn't sound good to me, but uh, what they didn't realize, they already had a king, and they're rejecting him. One thing, though, God always knew this was going to be the case. If you go back in Deuteronomy again, and in a couple other places, it was already said that this was going to happen. God had already planned for Israel to have a king. If you go back to uh, Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, it, it basically lays it out. Um, so in and of itself, it wasn't necessarily wrong that they have a king. I mean, David, is you know, Jesus going to come through that line. Um, but what's wrong here is their demands. First of all, wanting to be like other nations, wanting to be like the godless nations. You know, God had already set them apart from other nations. They didn't want that. They want to be like other nations. Uh, don't want to be different. We don't want to be like it. We, we want to kind of be like everything else. Uh, and then also wanting a king specifically, because it says to lead them into. They already had God leading them into battles. When God led them into battles, they won. If he didn't and went on their own, they failed big. Uh, so they're basically, both these motives are rejecting God as their king. They had a king. God was their king. You know, They were the only nation that could claim that. And they're rejecting it wholeheartedly. No, we want to be like everyone else. No, we need an earthly person as our king to lead us into battles because somehow that was better. Um, but, but that's what's so terrible about this is they're rejecting God as their king, not so much that there is going to be a king. All right. And then verse 10 through 17. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Thought it might be better. <laughs> 
they yeah, do. and they do. But, but, yeah. Right. And that's part of what led it to this, I would say, is the corruption they're seeing in their leadership, whether it's priests or the judges. And like, you know, like she was saying, if you didn't hear her, it's like, well, <laughs> we've already got corruption in the ones who are leading. Um, of course, it was really more Eli and Samuel that God was <laughs> appointing, and then they kind of did things they shouldn't have done. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, definitely that's why we have to be careful in our positions of leadership. You know, even if it's just in our friend group or in a church setting, because people look at this and go, "So that's what being a Christian's about." Hmm. You know, it, it could very well be. You know, what she's saying is that look at the leadership God's provided to this point. It's corrupt, and look what it's doing. Or that wasn't God's fault, but it would be easy as humans to look at that and go, well, let's go this way and see if it's any different. Uh, so that's a good point. Uh, but he lists all these these things. Did, did any of that sound positive? I, I, it didn't to me. Um, he lists all that, and, and these are the things that a king would do and what he would require. No, we still want a king. Verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. There's that again. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They want a king to fight their battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. So the people were, you know, it, he says they're going to regret this later. But what does it say? God said he's not going to listen to them. not going to listen to them. It's like, this is what you wanted. You didn't want me. You wanted this. There you go. And so he's not going to listen. You know, before when the people would crowd, he'd raise up a judge and deliver them. And they're getting their king. So the people refuse to listen, they reject God, and foolishly think a human king to rule over them is better. And I, and I guess this is my closing thought of this chapter, and there's not really a good answer, I guess, but with all they've seen and experienced with God, you go through all the history with the Israelites, how could they come to this conclusion? Now, and what she had said was a, a good point, and it could have led them to think in that way. But everything they've witnessed, everything they've seen, the other nations are even bending to them and like, we can't even approach this God you, you have over you. Um, how do they come to the conclusion that an earthly king is going to lead them better in battle than God? Um, do we sometimes trust in what we think over God's word and his will? I don't think I do it on purpose, but I think I do do it sometimes when I think I'm in control and I'm in charge and I know what I'm... I don't. I don't. But I think sometimes my actions say I do. So, any thoughts or questions about that? Yes, Daryl. I think that's exactly right. (laughs) Because when things are going good, we like to pat ourselves on the back and think we had something to do with it. You know, said, so, well, I've got this. This life thing, it's easy. Then when it's going bad and we don't know what to do, it's like, God help me. <laughs> so, yeah, I, th- I think that's true. So it just shows we're human, they were human, and it hasn't changed much. 
and that we still need to depend on God and look to Him and, and let Him lead us. It's tougher to remember that when things are good. You know, I, I think it is. Um, so that's a very good point. So, anybody else? Mm-hmm. And that's always been kind of a hard thing to accept because you think, well, yeah, if somebody came back and did, sure. You know, but in reality, look at, at history throughout to this point. They had a whole lot of miraculous things happen for them on their behalf, and they're still to this point. So well, when you read it, you think, oh, surely not. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I think that's true. So it's hard to believe we would be that thick-headed sometimes, but we are. So, <laughs> But we have God. So, Well, that's the end of Chapter 8. So, unless anybody else has something else, we've got two or three minutes, we'll just let you out early, unless somebody wants to say something. <laughs> I'm not going to get into nine, obviously, in three minutes. So, <laughs> All right, well, thank you for your attention. I appreciate it. <laughs>